right, good morning. I must admit they did not tell me I would be doing a uh, song alone up there on the stage until right beforehand, so I didn't know I'd be doing a solo. But it makes up for it being right in that chair as they sing up here on the platform because that's the best seat in the house. Happy February 14th. For some of you, that means Valentine's Day. For, those of, for others of you, that means Singleness Awareness Day. <laughs> okay? We'll just acknowledge that up front. I'm not doing a message on Valentine's Day, but I would feel remiss if I did not say something about it. I think it's important for us to recognize that days like this can be difficult for some people for the same reasons that they're wonderful for other people. That is, on Valentine's Day, the legend behind it is that there was a man, later recognized as Saint Valentine by the Roman Catholic Church, who performed weddings for soldiers in Rome during a time when the emperor had outlawed marriage for soldiers. He apparently decided that soldiers would fight better if they did not have home ties, which does not make much sense, but there you go. Valentine performed weddings for these people, and so he was upholding God's standard of marriage in a time that was very much against it. Now, your experience with relationships, your experience with marriage, your experience with Valentine's Day may be rough. Um, Maybe you've just gotten out of a relationship that ended poorly. Uh, Maybe you've not seen great relationships in your life, Uh, and maybe days like this are a little bittersweet for you. And to encourage you, that as we have days that lead us toward focusing on specific human relationships, such as Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, all those sort of things, we are images of God. What that means is we are designed to live lives that reflect truth about God. And we're all fallen sinners, which means we don't always get it right. In fact, we very rarely do, it seems, sometimes. But I want to encourage you that on days like today, you look past the human holiday, you look past the Hallmark cards, uh, you look past the uh, little red velvet bunnies and the little chocolates and little hearts everywhere, and you look at God's design for marriage. Not as an end in itself, but as a picture, a picture of something to come, a picture of Christ's love for the church, which we've seen demonstrated through the cross in the past, and a picture of the hope that we have of resurrection in what Christ has done for us. But also an example, an example of love, an example of what it means to sacrifice, to give for another, to serve another. And that makes a good transition for my sermon today. I'm going to go ahead and pray and we'll jump in. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to preach. Uh, I just pray that you would help me to do so well, that you would help me to communicate clearly, that you would help me to say what I ought to say, uh, what you have led me to say through your spirit, through my study of this passage and this text. I pray that it would be encouraging, that it would be helpful, that it would be challenging, and above all, that you would be glorified and clearly demonstrated in this sermon. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. My main point for this morning, they tell us in homiletics class, you should always make your main point clear. Here is my main point. Don't lose it. 
This is foundational. Great job. Keep it up. Okay? I don't want you, as the students of Maranatha, to get a wrong idea of how we think about you. We at Maranatha believe in the authority and inspiration of the Word of God. We believe in the holiness of God, and therefore we believe in the seriousness of sin. As a result, we preach about sin a lot because it is present in all of our lives and needs to be fought. We need to mortify those members of our flesh. But I don't want you to get the impression that that is all we think of you. I don't want you to get the impression that when we think of you as students, we think, oh, those terrible sinners. Any more than we think that about ourselves. uh, Because we need to keep that balance. We know that you are God-fearing, Christ-honoring, spirit-indwelled images of God. We know that you are a kingdom of priests and joint heirs with Christ. And we know that you make a pattern of walking in the Spirit. Why am I saying this? Because that is the tenor of this passage today, and that is largely the tenor of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silas and Timothy, his fellow laborers, in this passage uh, and in this book are writing to young believers. I want you to recognize that the believers they're writing to in Thessalonica have been saved maybe a year. And we'll talk about that time frame here in a minute. And he's very pleased with them. They have grown in faith, in love, and in hope. And he acknowledges that very uh, clearly up front in the sermon, or in the, well, sermon, epistle. He says that they're examples to the people around them. Now, they're not perfect. Neither is Paul, for that matter. But he is very pleased with their progress. He is very happy with their sanctification, the point where he says he thanks God every time he thinks of them. And I want you to know, as students at Maranatha, that that is how we as faculty and staff think of you. Okay? We thank God for his working in your lives. Not just so we get a paycheck. We are proud of you and your spiritual progress. Now, do we sometimes see issues that need to be addressed? Oh, yes, of course. We see those issues in our lives as well. And we want to help you. We want to encourage you. And because we love you, our prayer for you is the same as Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 for the Thessalonian believers. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. We desire your sanctification. We desire to help you in that process. We desire to help you make progress in that process. But we do see your growth. We are proud of your growth. And we thank God for your growth. And we want you to know that. Your students at a Christian college. We've spoken a lot recently about the importance of Christian education. And I just want to acknowledge again that you are here most likely because you value Christian education, because you value learning from the Bible's perspective, that you recognize the dangers of the world's perspective. I want to recognize the fact that many of you are trusting God to provide for your next school bill, not knowing where that's going to come from. 
I want to recognize that you're working hard in your classes and doing well as good stewards of that privilege. I want to acknowledge that you are investing people around you eternally, praying for them, encouraging them, helping them. I want to acknowledge that you are walking in the Spirit, that you are maturing in godliness and wisdom as you seek God in His Word. And I want to acknowledge that you are concerned about honoring God and doing His will in your lives. I cannot tell you how many students come to me and talk to me and say, I want to make sure I'm doing God's will. We know that you're sensitive to that. So I want to tell you the same message that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. Good job. Keep it up. Now, I want to build some context for you so we understand what's happening here. And the difficulty with my section, my passage this morning, is it's more of a transition than a passage in its own right. So I'm going to try to tie this book together and show you what's happening. Remember I mentioned that the driving themes of this letter are faith, love, and hope. Paul mentions these in the opening chapter. Uh, I should mention that 1 Thessalonians, like most of Paul's epistles, starts with a prayer of thanksgiving, where uh, Paul thanks God for his working in the believers' lives, and he acknowledges that God is working in them, and he praises that. It's hard to tell sometimes if he's praising them or praising God or praising God working through them, and the answer is probably yes. But 1 Thessalonians has the longest Thanksgiving section of any epistle compared to Galatians, which lacks one because they were denying the gospel. Okay? Paul is very thankful for, very grateful for these believers, and he says uh, in his opening section of this epistle, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. And I believe that those three themes, faith, love, and hope, set up the broad outline for this book. Those are the major topics with which Paul deals. Chapters 2 to 3, Paul recounts his and Timothy's and Silas's ministry among them. He does this not to throw his weight around. He says a lot of somewhat similar things to Galatians, where he's defending his apostleship. But in this message, what he's trying to say is, listen, you know the truth. You know the reality. We gave it to you. We taught it to you. And you know us. And you know that we care about you. And you know that we did so at God's bidding. He's encouraging them with regard to their faith. And that's that first section of the book. At the end of chapter 3, he transitions to the second major theme, which we're still in this morning, which is love. And he inserts a prayer in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and towards all men, even as we do towards you, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So then we jump into chapter 4, and chapter 4 starts with, Uh, a Christian sexual ethic. And I don't want you to lose the train of thought there. Because the point is, if you love your fellow believers, you will not mistreat them in the regard of sexuality. And your love for your fellow believers is based in your love for God. That's how Christ tied together the entire Bible. Love God, love others. And the New Testament writers see it as so obvious that you cannot truly love others without loving God first that they'll often say things like Paul does, The whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. That brings us to our passage for today, which continues the theme of love. 4, 9 to 12, 
But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. And I was very tempted to just walk off the stage at that point. (laughs) But there's more here. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it towards all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. And that you may have lack of nothing. And I want you to understand that this passage is a joyful, caring congratulation of believers who are not perfect but doing well. They are walking with God and living out their faith. And again, I want you to recognize we know that you are too. What Paul says to them, I say to you as the student body of Maranatha, great job, keep it up. Well, what does that look like? What are you supposed to keep doing? The first thing that you need to keep doing is keep loving others. But lest we analyze this passage in a vacuum, I want you to understand that Paul has already said much about love in this epistle. In chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, he says, regarding the time he was with them, we were gentle among you. As a nurse, or the idea there is a nursing mother, cherishes her children. And he says, therefore, we gave, we served. In 2, 11 to 12, he says, You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God. In 2, 17, he says, We being taken from you, and the word there is orphaned. That is, Paul describes the emotional suffering he is going through in being separated from these believers whom he loves and has poured time into as feeling like he has lost his parents. In chapter 3, 1 and 2, he says, When we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timothy. And he's saying, listen, we were driven out of Thessalonica. We were taken away from you. We were orphaned from you. And we couldn't take it anymore. So we sent someone to find how you're doing. In 3, 9 to 10, he says, What thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and perfect that which is lacking in your faith. He cares about them. He loves them. And I want you to understand that that is where this passage is coming from. Now, he gives himself and Titan. Silas and Timothy, there we go. He gives himself and Silas and Timothy as examples for them to follow. But I want you to understand, this is not because they're failing at love. They're doing well. He's encouraging them. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-8, You became followers. The idea there is imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. You became examples to all those who believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And he continues and says, also in every place, your faith to God is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. I want you to see what that looks like, okay? This is a map of Paul's first and second missionary journey, modern-day Turkey, Greece, and the Palestine region. 
He started his second missionary journey in Antioch, which is where he starts all of his journeys. And he traveled across modern-day Turkey, then called Asia Minor. And it says that as he went by these regions, as he walked by these cities, the Spirit said, no, not there. No, not there. No, not there. And he gets all the way to Troas, the end of land, and he's sitting there looking at the ocean going, where do I go next? This is the end of the road. And then he receives the Macedonian call in a dream. And God says, you're going to Macedonia. So he crosses. They stop first at Philippi, and I'm assuming you're familiar with the events there. And then they come to Thessalonica, the capital of the region. What happens there is they minister as is Paul's custom in the synagogue, for several uh, several weeks. His whole time there may have been as long as three months. It may have been as short as a month. We're not really sure. And at some point, as usually happens, the Jewish religious leaders drove him and Silas and Timothy out of town. They went to Berea. And they started a ministry there. And then the Jewish religious leaders from Thessalonica came to Berea and drove them out of there as well. So they fled down uh, to Athens and then eventually Corinth. In Athens is where Paul says, we couldn't take it anymore. We sent Timothy to check on you. And then he moves to Corinth. And from Corinth is where most people believe he is writing this letter to the Thessalonians. We're talking about maybe six months total time from arriving in Thessalonica to being in Corinth worried about them. Okay? And not a sinful worry, but these are people he's poured his life into. He's concerned that they will continue to walk faithfully. What he says at the end of this section is that they're examples of love. Six months saved. They are examples of the love of Christ to Macedonia, their own region, to Achaia, the region right below Macedonia, where Paul is, and everywhere. They've been believers for six months. Compare that to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthians, after his having been there for a year and a half, and his having been gone for about a year, were still carnal. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. Young believers who are faithful to God, and as a result are an example to others. How did this happen? This is our text. As touching brotherly love, you have need not that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it. They became examples because they lived it out. They became examples because they took the teaching of God as true and they lived it. What is the love we're talking about here? You'll notice I have brotherly love highlighted up there. And I want you to know that Paul's use of this word and the early church's use of this word was countercultural, confusing, and somewhat offensive in the Roman world. That is, in the Greco-Roman world, this word brotherly love is love for brothers, for siblings, brothers, sisters, family love. You have this kind of love for people you're related to. It was very confusing for the Romans when in the early church you would have a man and his wife who referred to each other as brother and sister. And it was one of their marks against the early Christian community that they could not understand what was happening here. And what we see in the New Testament is the standard is raised. 
You see in the Old Testament you're supposed to love your neighbor. You see in Christ's teaching that you're supposed to love your enemy. But it's more than that. We see built out in the New Testament that we are to treat other followers of Christ as brothers and sisters, as siblings, which was weird in the ancient world. Now, you know what love is. You've studied this your whole life. For fear of belaboring the point, I want to just make some applications. Love means valuing people as images of God instead of lying, coveting, stealing, murdering, and committing adultery. Love means speaking and living out the truth of the gospel instead of leading people astray. Love means denying our rights to others instead of seeking our own gain. Love means hospitality, care for the poor, the widows, orphans, friends, and family, instead of abusing people for our own use. This is where that previous section comes in on sexual conduct. We treat people with love. We don't use them for our own ends. The Thessalonians were examples of this, and I want you to know, so are you. You have come here to a school to be with people you do not know and probably have never met before, from different walks of life, different states, different regions, some of you from different countries. You spent your first night on campus in a room six feet away from someone you'd never met before in your life. Okay? And what we see is you loving each other, you caring for each other. Not only do you share your living space, your home with your roommates, but we have visitors come to campus, and you welcome them. And I want you to know that with this most recent visitor group that came through for the tournament, we as Maranatha received a letter thanking specific students for specific acts of care and love. Good job. Keep it up. Some of you I've seen reach out to the academy students on campus. And it warms my heart. I see you encouraging each other with truth at the missionary prayer groups, at the spark meetings. We see this in your society leadership and we see this in your dorm leadership. Good job. Keep it up. Paul says that the Thessalonians had learned this from God. And while Paul does set himself and Silas and Timothy forth as examples of how to love, that's not the ultimate basis. I do dearly hope that you have seen examples of godly love in your homes and in your churches. And I hope that you have seen examples of godly love here at Maranatha. But ultimately, that's not the reason why. That's not the basis of our love for others. The basis of our love for others is God's love for us, which we see in Scripture. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came not to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Ghost, and much assurance. And you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He says your confidence in this truth comes from the confidence you had in our message because it came with the proof of the Spirit. Probably none of us in this room have seen the New Testament confirmed with signs and miracles, though, as he's referring to here. For us, it's a little different. For those of you in my doctrine classes, you'll recognize these verses. They've become very precious to me. First Thessalon- uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, various times in various ways, 
spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Chapter 2, 3, and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. That is, we have confidence in this truth of God's love because we have an inspired Bible, Old and New Testament, confirmed by Christ, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, which we have, which we can read, which we can study, through which we can know God. They were to continue to abound in this love. And so are you. He says, continue to abound more and more. And this isn't the first time he's given this command in 1 Thessalonians. He says in 3, 12, and 13, may the God, uh, may the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and to all men, even as we do toward you. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, we see him praying something similar, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That should sound very familiar to what we've been doing in small group this semester because we've been going through the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love. We don't do the fruit of the Spirit. It grows in us. Now, obviously, we have responsibility to act, We have to move with, walk with the Spirit. But the point of this list is not to say this is all the things you need to be doing. The point of this list is so that you can look at yourself and look at those around you and say, yes, this is a Spirit-filled person. And I want you to know that we look at you and we see these fruit of the Spirit. Good job. Keep it up. But it's not just love. His second point is, keep minding your business. Verse 11, he says, study to be quiet, to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. They were to live quietly, and this looks very similar to 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3, which says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. We typically refer to this passage when we're talking about why we should pray for leaders. We pray for their salvation. We pray for them to make godly decisions. And that's not bad, and that's an application of this passage. But what Paul tells us to pray for in this passage is that the government will stay out of way enough so that we can follow God in peace. And to that end, we pray that they would make laws that don't inhibit us. We pray that they would lead in such a way that encourages godliness. But we're looking to live a quiet and peaceable life of following God. Not yet. We as believers don't seek position. We don't seek honor. We don't seek riches. We don't seek fame. We accept these as they come to God, recognizing there are difficulties and challenges and responsibility. Philippians 4.13 we're all familiar with, but I want us to understand it in its context where Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want. He's thanking the Philippians for a gift they sent him. For I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased, that is, be poor. And I know how to abound, that is, be rich. Everywhere in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things 
And you'll notice that word things is italicized, meaning it's not a specific word in the original language. It's added so it makes sense in English. The things he's talking about are being abased and abounding. I can do both of those through Christ which strengthens me. Paul says here, I am helped by the Spirit to be faithful to God in the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. Because both are a test, and we need to recognize that. Now, when I say we're to live quietly, I'm not advocating for political quietism. I'm not saying we should not be involved in our culture. In fact, I would argue that later in this passage, we're required to, by living honorably before all men, as he says later. But we don't put our hope in this world. We put our hope in God. We put our hope in Christ. We put our hope in the coming kingdom. And our next couple messages in Thessalonians will talk about those very themes. Not only live quietly, but don't be nosy gossips. Oh, I lost my thing. Oh, what happened? It went away. I lost a page. That's okay. Just imagine that's a slide that says, don't be nosy gossips. Okay? I don't feel the need to hammer the, con- the topic of gossip because the point of this sermon is encouragement. The point of this sermon is to say that we have seen you not doing this. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen, though. And as with every time we look at scriptural truth, we need to examine ourselves. And for sake of time, I'm going to speed through very quickly and simply make some points to you. You You're probably familiar with the scripture, but I want you to know that gossip destroys lives. Gossip attacks our fruitfulness because it destroys our walk with the Spirit who is the one who works the fruit in us. And I want you to know that gossip is an attack on God because when you gossip, you slander God's image. You attack God himself. You attack God's reputation. We need to be careful of that. He says then, we need to be working our jobs. Be quiet. Work with your own hands. And he's assuming that the Thessalonians will do physical manual labor because that was the world they lived in and they were probably largely lower class citizens. This topic is largely addressed in 2 Thessalonians. So I don't want to spend a ton of time here. But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 10, you know how you ought to follow us. We behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. He's talking about when he was with them. Neither did we eat any men's bread for naught, that is, for free, but wrought with labor and travail night uh, night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And to very briefly summarize for you what's happening here, Paul was saying that some of the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians instead of working to support themselves, were living off of others, were mooching off of other people, refusing to support themselves. As Christians, we know that we work. Uh, That is part of man's original creative purpose in the garden. We work to provide for our own needs and for our relatives and to give to others, to provide for our pastors, and Ecclesiastes tells us at some level to enjoy this life, okay? Okay? But we do not live for money. We do not live for riches. In Proverbs, 
the writer says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. We might say in the New Testament, daily bread. Lest I be full and deny thee and say who is the Lord. Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of God in vain. We strive for contentment. We don't seek more. The goal of all of this, though, is still the idea of love. Because of love for others, we live a quiet, peaceable life. We live a faithful life. We encourage others. We show hospitality. We work our jobs. And I want you to know, we see you doing this. Good job. Keep it up. All of this together, brotherly love, hardworking lives, encouraging speech, brings us to this third and final point. Keep walking worthy. And that expression is not used in this passage, but Paul uses it elsewhere in this letter and in multiple New Testament books to describe living a life that honors God. He says that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. He reminds them, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father, as children, that you walk worthy of God in chapter 2 who has called you to his kingdom and glory. They were supposed to be an example to other believers, and so must you. In the New Testament, we are told that we are in some way to focus on our relationships with other believers. Galatians 6.10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. But we're still responsible for how the world views us. 1 Peter 2.11-12 He says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, that is, people who live in this world who are not citizens of it. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Why? That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We have a responsibility to live honorably. And when Christians treat each other badly and treat unbelievers badly, and don't show that love, we attack this. We attack the view of God that we are supposed to be living out for them. When we, as an image of God, act in a way that is ungodly, we are proclaiming to the world around us, this is what God is like. And we need to be careful of that. We see you walk worthy. We know that businesses in Watertown want Maranatha students to work for them. They want Maranatha graduates to go uh, intern at their companies. Great job. Keep it up. Now, why does this matter? And I'm closing. Okay? Why does this matter? Well, I didn't include that slide. That's okay. I'm just going to read the scripture. I've shown this verse a couple times. It's important because love leads to holiness. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 to 13. I've shown this verse twice already. The Lord make you increase and abound in love towards one another and towards all men, even as we do towards you. Why? To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Christ summarized scripture as love for God and love for others. We love God which shows itself in love for others. As we do that process of loving others, we become more like God, which leads us to love God more. 
which leads us then to love others more, which helps us to better love God. It's all connected. You cannot love God and hate people, as John tells us in 1 John. And you cannot love people and hate God. They're so entwined because people are God's images. I want to tell you, my goal in this sermon is encouragement, okay? But with every encouragement also comes the requirement of self-evaluation. So I say to you as a group, great job. Keep it up. And in that process of keeping it up, make sure you examine yourself. Make sure you evaluate yourself. Make sure you're comparing yourself to the standard of Christ. Because that is our goal. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this truth in your word. We thank you for the encouragement to love. We thank you for the example of love we have in Christ. We thank you for the fact that we can never live up to that example And yet, we thank you for the fact that we will do so perfectly in eternity, that one day we will have our sin natures removed from us, that we will be perfectly loving you and others forever, always, as our natural desire. I just pray that you would help us in that. I pray that you would take this truth, uh, that you would plant it in our hearts, that you would shape and fashion us through it, that we would become more like you, and that we would be images of God that accurately reflect who you are to each other and to the world around us for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.